We want to uh, <clears throat> open God's Word this morning and listen to it and be taught by it. And uh, we're going to start reading this morning in Hebrews chapter 9. And we'll read also some verses in chapter 10. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1 uh, says this. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. And above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now, which is a hoot because he's kind of been discussing them in detail for Jarvis. <laughs> That's what a pastor would say, you know. <laughs> uh, let's see, lost my place here. Yeah, there we go, verse six. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, uh, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way in, into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They, had only a matter, uh, they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? And then chapter 10, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered, and this, and this priest is referring to Jesus, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and 
I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this book that we call the book of Hebrews. Uh, We thank you for the way it points us again and again and again to Jesus. Uh, as it does in the text that we read this morning. And we pray, God, that you would open our hearts, you would open our eyes, uh, you would open our minds to both learn and respond to the truth that we learn. We pray, Father, that you you would uh, change, convict, encourage, speak to us as only you can. We give this time to you and ask you to work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, looking at the book of Hebrews. This morning we come to chapters 9 and chapter 10, uh, which in a way is really sort of getting at the heart of the overall message of this book. Because in this passage we learn that Jesus saves through sacrifice, or you could say through the shedding of blood. Not just any blood either, not the blood of bulls and goats, but his blood. His own blood is the key. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 said, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. No forgiveness. Now understand right there, modern people have a big problem with our religion, with our faith, with this thing we call Christianity. When contemporary people hear that uh, it's said that God requires blood to be shed to turn away his wrath from sin, well, Understand that sounds archaic, does it not? I mean, that's offensive, that's disgusting, that's primitive, that's barbaric. Because we we just can't imagine that sacrifice, blood sacrifice, can be of any real significance. What we need is a religion that's morally uplifting and loving and peaceful and wholesome and I would add ineffective. But the book of Hebrews says there's power in the blood. There's an old hymn to that effect, power in the blood. The book of Hebrews says that without blood being shed, we wouldn't know the depth of our own sin problem. Without blood being shed, we would not know the power of God's solution to our sin problem. The book of Hebrews says that uh, without the shedding of blood, we wouldn't know the extent of the transformation that can take place in us. The Bible calls this sanctification. That's the Bible word for personal transformation, us becoming more like Jesus. And the shedding of blood is what can guarantee and secure and make possible this transformation. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. In Hebrews chapter 9, reference is made to Old Testament tabernacle worship. The tabernacle, of course, was a tent and a curtained off courtyard around that tent. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13, it says that there was no way to come before God to worship God at that tabernacle uh, without, it says, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean to sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean or ritually clean. 
And what that is saying is that if in Old Testament times you want to go to worship God, you walked into the temple compound and if you were to go from, now you couldn't do this, so you had to be a priest and a high priest, but you, if you were to go from the entrance to that courtyard all the way into the Holy of Holies, well, to travel that distance, you would have to pass by three altars. The first one was the altar of burnt offering, whereupon, you know, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice was being offered all day long. The second altar was an altar of incense in the holy place that was depicting the constant prayers and petitions going to God. It was an altar, it was a sacrifice of prayer. The third was in the Holy of Holies itself. It was the Ark of the Covenant and a, a cover or a lid over that bark, box, over that, that thing called the Ark of the Covenant contained, and in the covenant it contained a copy of the law, it contained Aaron's rod, it contained manna from the wilderness. And once a year, when the high priest uh, would enter that place, the Holy of Holies, he would do so only with blood. Blood of a sacrifice to sprinkle on the cover of that ark, which was called the mercy seat. And the point is this, the tabernacle as a place, as a house of worship was not a place where you could just stroll in and sit down and meditate or, or sing or, or pray. The fact is, when you entered the temple or tabernacle compound, you could not even enter the compound or let alone get near the tent or let alone go into the holy place without witnessing again and again and again and again and again the shedding of blood. That's what Hebrews ten eleven says. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So what is this all about? I mean, why, why all the blood? I mean, there's a lot of blood being shed here. Well, understand, in ancient times, blood had both a very negative as well as a very positive significance. Negatively, if you have blood gushing from your chest or oozing out of your eyes or pouring out of your mouth, this is a bad thing. It meant something was really, really wrong. It meant you might die. Uh, it was an indicator that something was not the way that it should be. And that, that's one negative that blood connoted. Uh, there was another and that had to do with this idea of guilt or this idea of stain or this idea of sin. You know, the saying went that you have blood on your hands. That was a saying back then, just like it is today. Or you have blood on your head and both of them meaning you are guilty. You are guilty. That's the verdict. And this guilt that you have leaves stain on your hands, the stain of blood. You have these ideas expressed in places like Isaiah 59, three, for your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Blood had that connotation to it. And so we come to the tabernacle and there's all this blood being shed, animals dying everywhere. And we have to ask, okay, what exactly are we to make of this? What was a Jew coming to the tabernacle to make of all of this blood being spilled? 
And what it all meant was, again, something's wrong. Something is seriously, seriously broken. Life is messed up, especially our life, especially my life as it relates to God. Badly broken. And so this picture was vividly painted before the eyes of everyone who came to worship God, regardless what day it was. The brokenness was not going to be fixed through just a a little more education or better religious training or ethical instruction or psychotherapy or group sessions or government legislation. The fix for all of our brokenness was going to require something much more radical than all of that. Because you see the violence and the ugliness and the brokenness and the sinfulness of life runs very deep and it's not going to be fixed easily. And what is more, uh, there is this real thing of personal guilt. If you've ever read parts of the Old Testament, you know, about the the priest and sacrifice and placing the hands, you know, on the sacrifice, symbolizing this sacrifice is going to bear my sin. All of it again, shouting again and again and again, something's really wrong. Something is seriously broken. Now, the sacrifices didn't just suggest that things were bad. The sacrifices said that you and I, we, they, back then, are complicit in it. We are part of the problem. We are guilty. And therefore, we are stained. Our hands are stained with blood. And try as you might, you can't seem to shed your guilt just because you want to, or your stain, or your sin. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this when he talks about conscience. This book mentions conscience more than any other book in the Bible. And it says things like this in chapter 9, verse 9. It says, the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. In chapter 10, verse 22, we saw this. It says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. It implies that one of our really big problems is that we have a guilty conscience that needs cleansing. There is this stain. There is this guilt of conscience that we, in spite of our efforts, can't seem to get rid of. And this talk about conscience is pretty interesting. It's related very closely to something that we talk about a lot, self-esteem. Because in the Bible, you see, the word conscience has to do with your self-evaluation. How good am I? How fit am I to be your friend or to be your spouse or to be your employer or to be your employee or to be your pastor? You see, conscience is very closely connected to the idea of self-esteem, a verdict that I give myself. Your conscience is where you make the determination of whether you are fit to be in God's presence or anyone else's presence for that matter. And having a bad conscience means, of course, having a profound sense that you don't belong. That if the truth were known about you, what you really know or 
don't know in spite of your efforts to look like you know a lot or what you really think in spite of your efforts to hide what you really think or who you or what you really are. If people knew the truth about you, they would reject you. God especially would reject you. You see, that's conscience at work. And all these repeated religious observances that were part of the Old Testament ritual, sacrifice and so, they were not cleansing the conscience. They were teaching, they were proclaiming, but they weren't cleansing the conscience. They were not ridding worshipers of their awareness and this ever-present sense of guilt and shame. Of their deep-seated awareness that they really did not belong. Not before other people, because if people really knew you, they'd reject you. Not before God, because guess what? God does know you. He knows how weak and proud and jealous and insecure and self-centered we are. He knows. And friends, this matter of our conscience is a huge issue for us today. Turns out it's always been a huge issue for human beings to deal with their own conscience. It's what keeps counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists and pastors in business. Thank you very much. (laughs) It's what causes most of our stress, most of our anxiety, our hurt feelings, our disagreements, our relational problems. It's our conscience that bothers us. And because of this, it's one of the major themes in all of human literature. You remember Shakespeare's Macbeth? You've perhaps seen that or read it. Macbeth and Lady Macbeth murder King Duncan is part of the story. They take his throne, but they're not able to enjoy it because their conscience won't leave them alone. They walk around with a sense of blood on their hands. Uh, Lady Macbeth is feeling so guilty for the murder of the king. Uh, She can't sleep. She's having visions. Uh, And when she is asleep, she sleepwalks. Her behavior is very strange and erratic, weird. A doctor and her maidservant are watching her one night, trying to figure out what is going on with Lady Macbeth. And at one point, she's sleepwalking and she's rubbing her hands. She's saying, out, damned spot, out, I say. And it won't go out. It won't be gone. Her conscience is killing her. She cannot make her guilt go away. And this is a huge theme in all of human literature, theater, film, because it's a huge issue for all of us. Now, today, we've got a a solution, a popular solution. Modern psychology asserts that guilt is only a psychological response to things that we've been taught. And much of what we've been taught is just wrong. It needs to be overthrown. We need to get rid of it. They would say we now know, of course, that there are no moral or religious absolutes or certainties. Truth claims, morality claims, they're relative depending on your culture, depending on the time, right? So we make our own truth and we live within our own moral system that we make up formally or informally. And therefore, what modern man needs is a new understanding of him or herself. Uh, This was on full display recently. How many of you watched the Adele special last Sunday night? Any of you? Some of you did, yeah. 
Holly and I watched that and um, Adele would sing and then there would be a break in her singing and she would be interviewed by Oprah, Oprah Winfrey. Um, and honestly, as I sat and I, I watched the interview, I mean, Adele's an extremely gifted artist, but the interviews were one of the saddest things I've seen in a long, long time. I guess Adele just got a divorce. She'd been married for about three years. She had a little, little boy. And somewhere along the line, Adele realized that in the midst of her circumstances, she was not happy. And uh, this is uh, nearly a quote. She said she was not living for herself. And she needed to find out who she was. And she told Oprah that, uh, you know, she still loves her ex-husband. And of course, she loves her son. She said that she and her ex-husband are best friends. She says she trusts him. This is nearly a quote more than anyone else on earth. And uh, they parent together and so, and which is a good thing. But because Adele wasn't happy, she needed a divorce. And she felt bad about breaking up her marriage. She felt sorry for her son. Turning his life upside down was the phrase I think she used. And Oprah even asked uh, at that point in time, it sounds like maybe you feel guilty. Do you feel guilty about what you've done? And Adele said, oh, oh no, 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 I don't, I don't feel guilty. Maybe I've, I'm been being selfish, she said, uh, because she had hurt the two people that she said she loved most in the world. And in the midst of uh, confusion is what I would call it, Oprah was trying to, I think, encourage her to see that her courage, that's the word she used, and her bravery, that's another word she used, her willingness to do anything she needed to do in order to secure her own happiness, uh, that would help others who found themselves in similar circumstances uh, where they were unhappy, and now maybe they would have the courage to do what they needed to do, which was get up and get out. Now, admittedly, I, I don't know anything about Adele's marriage situation or circumstances, so I'm not, I'm not here to comment specifically on any of that, but I'm just observing that in our culture, we want to celebrate the breakup of a marriage. Why? Well, because someone was unhappy. And we don't go any deeper. We don't talk about their conscience and how they feel about this breakup. The whole, the whole show, I, I think, was trying to help Adele assuage her own conscience. Help her not feel guilty. Help her get to happiness. And uh, I just couldn't help but observe that culturally, culturally, we want to be free to feel and to think whatever we want to feel and think. We want to be free to do whatever we want to do, even if the doing of what I want to do hurts you. If I want to cheat, if I want to divorce, if I want to discriminate against you because of the color of your skin, if I want to steal, if I want to hate, if I want to experience sexual pleasure inside or outside of marriage or with a different gender or the same gender, whatever makes me happy, whatever makes me happy, I just need to do it and not feel guilty. And that says our culture is good. That is courageous. That is brave. That is noble. Guilt is not good and therefore should be avoided at all costs. Guilt is only due to letting someone else judge you. So get rid of guilt. 
Just don't accept other people's judgments of you, whatever those judgments might be. Don't accept any standard other than your own barometer of happiness. And that, I think, friends, kind of fits our culture to a T. I kept thinking during the interview, it was, you know, it's good to be talking to Adele. Why not get her ex-husband there and ask him some questions? What would that look like? What would that have sounded like? I mean, I don't know, to be honest with you, but I bet it would have been different. You see, there are huge problems with that kind of thinking. Uh, truthfully, bottom line, it just doesn't work. It's, it, you, you can't live that way and live consistently. You see, for most of us, when we lie or when we cheat, when we steal, when we break a promise, when we're unfaithful to a friend or spouse or whoever, when we act selfishly or act hurtfully or act hatefully, when we break up a marriage for selfish reasons, well, we feel guilty. And I would argue we should. We should. Because deep down we know. We just know innately because of whose image we're made in. We know innately that there is accountability in the universe and there is a God to whom one day I will answer it for this selfish behavior of mine. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, just as man is destined to die once, after that to face the judgment. I mean, the Bible's assumption is you do understand, or, or the Bible's declaration is you need to understand that a day is coming when you will stand before a holy God and give an account of all the decisions, choices, actions that you've taken and made. The Bible asserts, and we've looked at this, looked at it last week, that, you know, we know deep down certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And, and that's why even as Adele was being interviewed, Oprah got to the point where she had to ask her, sounds like maybe you feel guilty. She immediately denied it, but uh, it was a denial that if you, if you watched the interview, you could see, oh, no, she's guilty. She feels guilty. I mean, we can deny these things and we can suppress these things. And that is kind of what we do. And we may declare, you know, it isn't so. No, I'm not guilty. But I'll tell you, we really can't live that way because it doesn't work. There, there are values built into us. We, we can't fully suppress. And here's the thing, too. Here's another reason why we can't live that way. See, if my happiness is your sorrow or if your happiness is my sorrow, do, do you see that that can't make any sense. If my happiness is, I don't know, inflicting harm to you, or if your happiness is inflicting harm to me, that, that those things cancel each other out. Talk about cancel culture. You see, without objective values, things out there that judge me, that pronounce a verdict on me, without objective values, everything is just relative. And certainly there can be no guilt. You can't tell me that anything I think or do is wrong. That's why we can't really live that way. I mean, can you live if somebody hurts you or steals from you or is unfaithful to you or is cruel to you or is selfish toward you? Can you just say, oh, that doesn't matter if that makes them happy? You see, that's not okay. And we've all been treated badly. And when we are, you know what we do? That's not fair. You're guilty of mistreating me. You see, human, human beings haven't been able to get rid of these notions or these ideas very easily. Despite our enlightenment, 
despite our declarations that God is dead and so is the morality that goes with him? You see, we still haven't been able to make guilt go away, even if Oprah's interviewing you. The truth is we've got an enormous guilt problem, all of us, every, every human being. And it's so deeply rooted uh, in us. It, it's, it's a knowledge at base that we really don't measure up. We'll measure up to what? Anything. We don't measure up to anything. We don't measure up to God's standard, his law. We don't measure up to society's standard. How many of you sped, broke the speed limit on the way to church this morning? <clears throat> Guilty. And you know what else? We don't even live up to our own personal standards, the laws that we make up. I've had every parent here, when you have that little child, that little boy or little girl said, I'm going to be the best parent ever. I'm certainly not going to make the mistakes that my parents made. And then if you've parented for a while, have you done with that law that you made? Have you done with that? I'm going to guess you're guilty. You're guilty of not living up to your own standard. Man, we feel guilty. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is we all have a guilty conscience. We can't live up to God's law, the laws that our society makes, or the laws that we make. Guilty. But the writer of Hebrews also says that God has a deep solution to our guilt problem. The writer of Hebrews says God has the only solution to the guilt problem. Earlier, I said that this whole shedding of blood thing had both a negative and a positive connotation to ancient people. We kind of looked at the negative, this guilt thing, this stain of blood on our hands. But there's also a very positive connotation to the notion, the idea, the, uh, the picture of blood. Blood was actually symbolic of life, life itself. If any of you have ever witnessed the birth of a baby, you know there's blood, sometimes lots of blood. When our firstborn, uh, uh, Ian, was born, Holly lost a lot of blood to the point where they were very, very concerned for her well-being. And uh, I remember standing there going, whoa, blood, lots of blood. I mean, I wouldn't say this, but you know, I'm a pastor. I know what not to say, but I'm, I'm thinking, whoa, somebody do something, you know. And yet we were celebrating at the same time. There's, here's our firstborn child. And he came in the midst of a lot of blood. But life, so, you know, life doesn't even begin without the shedding of blood. There's, there is life in the blood, you see. When someone sheds their own blood for another human being, they voluntarily give up their blood for another. There's something very redemptive and very powerful in self-sacrifice. There just is. There's a gentleman named Ernest Gordon. He was an allied prisoner of war in the Japanese POW camp in Thailand. He later became the uh, dean of the chapel at Princeton University. And he wrote a book that was very popular in, in its day called Through the Valley of Kwai. And at one point he relates this story. Um, all of the prisoners of war had been out working in, in a work gang and they came back and they have to turn in their tools. And so, and this is what he writes. He says, the day's work ended. The tools were being counted as usual. As the party was being dismissed, the guards shouted that a shovel was missing. The guard insisted that someone had stolen it. So striding up and down before the men, the guard ranted and raved, working himself into a fury, screaming in broken English, uh, 
screaming in broken English that he, he demanded that the guilty one step forward to take his punishment. No one moved. The guard's rage reached new heights of violence. Then all die, all die, he shrieked. And to show that he meant what he said, he cocked his rifle and put it on his shoulder and aimed it at the first man in the rank and prepared to shoot and work his way down the line. And at that moment, a soldier from the Argyle Regiment stepped forward, stood stiffly to attention and said calmly, I did it. And the guard unleashed all his whipped up hate, kicking the helpless prisoner and beating him with his fist, seizing his rifle by the barrel. The guard lifted it high over his head and brought it down on his skull, the skull of the Argyle, who sank limply to the ground and never moved again. And though it was perfectly clear that he was dead, the guard continued to beat him and stopped only when he was exhausted. And the men of the work detail picked up their comrade's body, marched back to camp, and when the tools were counted again, as you might expect, it turned out that no shovel was missing. They were saved by the blood. And we can all kind of feel to the extent that we can put ourselves in that story. We can feel the power, the life-giving power of the shedding of blood. This man was innocent, but he knew that if he didn't step forward, that a whole lot more of them were going to die. And so he made the decision. My life for their life. And as you can imagine, his sacrifices impacted the rest of those men for the rest of their life. And a good bit of the book is about the impact that that event had on them. That's the power of blood. The power of the giving of life. Now, of course, a question for us is, is the God of the Bible the same as the ancient gods of, of Rome or Greece? They, you know, these gods, too, required blood sacrifice. Is what was going on there the same as what was going on when we look at the, the ritual activities and the sacrificial activities of, of the Jews? You know, there's the story of Agamemnon. Some of you probably read this in Homer's Iliad. Uh, Agamemnon's trying to get to Troy to actually fight a war, lead, lead the, the fight uh, and to get back uh, Helen. But he has offended the goddess Artemis. And uh, so she keeps sending contrary winds so he can't sail to Troy. He can't get there. So he's thinking I, he's desperate and he thinks, what should he do? And he decides to go to an oracle. And the oracle says that the goddess Artemis will only be appeased if you sacrifice one of your daughters. And so he does. That's what he does. Sacrifices one of his daughters. Uh, and then Artemis, the Greek god, her anger is assuaged and he's able to get to the battle of Troy. So the question, is the God of the Bible this kind of God who demands a blood payment, a blood appeasement? Or is the God of the Bible different? Well, according to the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, uh, he writes and says, Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. That's somebody else's blood. But he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood. Remember, 
The book of Hebrews has taught us that Jesus Christ is, of course, the creator. He's God himself. Remember in, in Hebrews chapter 1, right at the very beginning, verse 3, it says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's image. He's God. That's what, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's God. But what this God does is the exact opposite of what the gods of Greece and Rome did and do. You see, here you have a God uh, who, who uh, demands blood as payment for the injustice and the sin that we precipitate. But instead of taking your blood in payment, he gives his own. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the apostle Paul is speaking to the elders of Ephesus. And, and this is what he said. He said, be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. Jesus bought the church with his own blood. That's amazing, friends. Jesus looks at our sin and our guilt, and there are two things he can do. One, he can judge us, and justly so. We are guilty. That's the verdict. That's one thing he could do, but what he did was he decided to bear our judgment, to take our guilt on himself. That's, of course, what the cross is all about. God, Jesus, choosing not to inflict punishment on his bride, on his church, on his people. We justly deserve punishment, but instead of choosing to have us bear that punishment, he chose instead to bear it for us. He chose instead to destroy the power of sin and guilt and death. To take those things on himself. Now I know, I mean, I'm kind of with you on this. I'd rather, I'd rather not even talk about this stuff. I wish our gospel was something fluffy and soft. I, I wish, <clears throat> I, you know, who wants to talk about sin? Who wants to talk about blood? Who wants to talk about guilt and sacrifice? We'd all rather talk about Jesus, the great teacher, Jesus, the moral example, Jesus, the teacher of love, the bringer of peace, blah, blah, blah. But understand, when you gut Christianity of the cross and of blood and of sacrifice, what you, what you do is you, you just make Christianity another religion, ho-hum. It becomes do this, don't do this. We talked about this last week so that you can conform your life to something better. But that's not what you need. And I would say to you, that's not going to get rid of the guilt that you have and the, the guilt that you feel. You need freedom from guilt. You need something that's powerful enough to come inside you and actually give you hope for change and transformation. And for those things to happen, well, justice needs to be done. Your sins need to be paid for. And that's the whole point of this, these passages that we read. It tells us that religious observance and good works and, you know, religious sacrifices, that, that doing everything you can to wash off this damned spot, doing everything you can to get a sense that you're all right, that you're okay, uh, to cover up the real failures that do exist in your life. Uh, all of that, doing of a religion is not going to work. It's not going to cleanse your conscience. That's what this passage tells us. 
The only thing that will put your conscience, your sense of who you really are at absolute peace and rest is to know that Jesus, who knows you fully, and loves you enough to shed his own blood for you. Jesus has pronounced a verdict over you. And it's a verdict of righteousness. It's a verdict that says not guilty. Hebrews 10, 14 says, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. Who? Who has he made perfect forever? It's you and me. He's made perfect forever. That's our standing in him. Perfect forever. It's not based on anything we do. It's based on him and his sacrifice. He has made perfect those who are being made holy. You see, we have this stance in Jesus. It's called justification by faith where we are pronounced perfect, perfect forever. But then there's something else that happens. It's called sanctification. And that's something that progresses in us. It's a progression towards holiness. It's beautiful. I get a verdict, not guilty. And then I get the power to actually change and be transformed. And here's the thing, you see, we don't become more holy to get the verdict. We get the verdict and out of the verdict, we grow to be more holy. I hope you see the difference. Being a Christian means putting one's faith and trust in Jesus and surrendering yourself to him every day. It means knowing every day what he has done for you. His death, his sacrifice. This is how you can come into God's presence and have a pure conscience. Hebrews 10, 19 said this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence. What an interesting word to choose here. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. That's the place nobody can go except the high priest himself. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. How could you ever have confidence to enter there? Well, he tells us. By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Jesus' body, that curtain rent in two. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, not a perfect clean heart, because you don't got that. But with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with what? Well, with Jesus' blood. Why? He says to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Therein is the solution. There is power in the blood of Jesus. Do you know that power? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Are you trusting in him and him alone every single day? Are you taking hold of the fact that he says about you, not guilty, even though you are not guilty? Because of what he's done for you. He's made you perfect forever. I'll end with this. Billy Graham in 1955. I was born in 1954. 
go ahead and go, Woo, wow, long time ago. In 1955, Billy Graham was asked to come to Cambridge University. You know, he'd become a very notable uh, public evangelist at this point in time. Group of, a small group of Christians at Cambridge invited him to come and preach to the faculty and the student body, about 8,000 individuals. And Billy Graham said yes, and he was astounded to even be asked. <clears throat> and uh, a lot of people were astounded that he was asked. <laughs> the Times of London began to run articles saying how inappropriate this was. It's totally inappropriate having a fundamentalist preacher come to Cambridge and preach to the intellectual elite of the world. One article said that Billy Graham is a very sincere person. They had to say something nice about him, right? But he's a fundamentalist, it said. He believes that you have to be saved by the blood of Jesus. And fundamentalism is bad for us, they said. And besides that, no one at Cambridge is going to be moved by anything that a fundamentalist is going to say. Well, Billy Graham goes and he admitted in his writings later uh, after this that he was freaked out by it. He was fearful. He was intimidated. He prepared eight special messages unlike any other messages he had ever prepared. They were as erudite as he could make them, uh, intellectual, philosophically, apologetic, and so on. And Billy Graham thought that he needed to preach like someone else, maybe John Stott or something like that, if he was going to reach these, these intellectuals. Now, uh, he was going to be preaching at Great St. Mary's, which is a, a church there that's at the center of the campus holds about 2,000 people and he was going to be there eight nights. The first three nights he preached one of those eight messages that he had prepared. The place was packed out. Everybody listened politely and then got up afterwards and left. And this bothered Billy. He was used to preaching the gospel and seeing people want to know more about Jesus, right? But that wasn't happening. Not these first three nights. But on Wednesday night, Billy Graham decided to throw away his prepared messages. And what he actually told the crowd, he said, just, he said, tonight I'm just going to tell you what I know about the cross and the sacrifice of Christ. And that's what he did. And so with the place packed again with students and faculty, all of them predisposed to think that preaching the cross, preaching the blood of Jesus, preaching sacrifice was barbaric, archaic, irrelevant, and embarrassing. That night, Billy Graham started in Genesis. It was a long sermon. <laughs> and he walked right through the whole Bible talking about every sacrifice you could imagine. He talked about the sacrifice that God obviously made for Adam and Eve when they had sinned because he wanted to give them garments. And so animals were shed on their behalf. Talked about the sacrifices, the cutting up of animals when God made a covenant with Abraham. And he talked about the sacrifice at Passover, the animals, the lamb that was sacrificed and the blood of the lamb that was put on the doorpost. And he talked about the sacrifice, the many sacrifices that took place at the foot of Mount Sinai. Talked about the sacrifice at the dedication of the tabernacle. Talked about the sacrifices that were offered again and again and again at the temple. And then he talked about the blood sacrifice on the cross. And faculty members were embarrassed by this. How do we know that? Because they, they wrote about it in the newspapers the next day. That this was just an embarrassing message to have preached 
on the grounds of Cambridge University. But at the end of the sermon, when people were being dismissed, Billy Graham said he would be available, he and others with him, to meet with anyone who wanted to explore more about this sacrifice, this blood sacrifice available to meet with anyone who wanted to receive Jesus. And that night, 400 men and women stayed and prayed. Some of the brightest men and women in all of Europe and all the world, actually. They'd understood something about the blood. Something had spoken to them about their own guilt and their own sin. Something connected with the brokenness that they knew existed within them and they didn't have a solution for it as bright as they were but Billy Graham talked about one and it was the blood of Jesus Christ and for those 400 men and women I'm sure uh, it changed everything the landscape of their lives changed So what do we do with that? Well, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, there's that word again, confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, the blood of Christ alone has the power to cleanse you from your guilty conscience. And I I hope that everything we've talked about this morning stimulates you to want to become more like Jesus. To one another, to your neighbors who don't even know him, stimulates you to want to become more like the one and only thing that can cleanse a human being from their guilty conscience. Amen. Let's pray. Father, the magnitude and the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and the offense of it is really, really huge. Uh, we're, we're made aware of the fact that none of our solutions fix the problem of guilt. We, we can say we don't believe we're guilty. We can pretend that there's no such thing as guilt. We, we can do all kinds of things and do, Lord. But the reality is we're guilty. And we feel it. And we need deliverance and salvation. And you, Jesus, are the Savior. No one else, nothing else. God, let us sit in the truth of the fact that you have pronounced over us the the verdict perfect forever. That's your verdict. You have made us perfect forever. 
And Father, out of that, may we grow hearts that long to give you glory and honor and obedience, long to represent you well to each other and to others who don't know you. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel. We ask in Jesus' name.